Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, and culture. Our first guest is Edwin Bettistella, who is the author of the book, Sorry About That, The Language of Public Apology. I'm fascinated by apologies and what makes a good one and why some fall flat. It's more than just words, as it must include true contrition. We all screw up. So let's find out how to make more effective mea culpas. We also welcome back my buddy, Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next movie critic. Darren is going to weigh in on the success and failures of apologies, and he will also review the nine-time Oscar-nominated movie, Banshees of Inishirin, because apology and forgiveness is at the core of the film. Let's get started. Edwin, can you please give us your six-minute opening remarks? I'm Edwin Battistella. I'm a emeritus professor of English and linguistics at Southern Oregon University, and I'm the author of Sorry About That, The Language of Public Apology, published in 2014. As a linguist, I've always been interested in how people do things with words, how we use them to repair relationships, how we use them to harm others, how we use them to make promises, threats, all sorts of things. And a few years ago, I got interested in the language of public apology during Barack Obama's State of the Union address when a congressman from South Carolina jumped up and shouted, you lie! And then the next day, he apologized. A couple days after that, he retracted his apology. And I remember thinking, Somebody should really look into the way public apologies work. Sorry about that was the result. I looked at about 500 different public apologies over the course of many years. One of the things that was very informative to me was the work of a sociologist named Irving Goffman, who published a book in 1956 called The Presentation of the Self in Everyday Life. What Goffman talked about was the notion of face in the sense of we sort of want to create a coherent, positive impression of ourselves with others in society. When you do something awful, or even just something run-of-the-mill bad, one of the ways you can repair your standing in society is to condemn your earlier self and then ask forgiveness So this idea that you're no longer the self that did the harm is a sort of fundamental notion of apology. An apology is both a social act where you're bringing that new self back into good standing in society and a moral act where you're accepting the shame and the blame of what you've done. I looked at some of the ways that apologies really go wrong. And one of the ways that they tend to go wrong is insincerity with the actual language itself, the words that people use. And that's where I found the passive voice, the famous mistakes were made type of apology, conditionals, you know, I apologize if anyone is offended, indefinite phrasings like, I apologize for whatever it is I did, hair splitting where you might apologize for one part of an offense and then ignore the others. Oh, I'm sorry for my choice of words when really it was something else you did that was much more egregious. 
So the actual choice of the word we use makes a difference in terms of how the apology is taken. You referenced Irving Goffman in your opening remarks, and I want to give our listeners a little background. Goffman is one of the most important social scientists of the 20th century. He was an incredibly observant sociologist. His breakout book was The Presentation of the Self in Everyday Life, and it came out of his fieldwork in the Shetland Islands off the coast of Britain, where he noticed that villagers had various faces with the public depending on the other person or the circumstances. You present yourself differently at home, in the village, or with a stranger from a foreign country. And then Goffman applied that framework to the world of apologies in his classic work, Relations in Public. Goffman concludes that we have both a good self and a bad one, and that in an apology, we need to tell the harm party that you are aware of the bad self and want to be the better self, and will work towards that end. Tell us about Goffman's work and apologies. It's a sort of natural response when we do something egregious to want to split into a self that isn't responsible. And you see this all the time in apologies where someone will say, well, I take responsibility for that even though it wasn't my fault. People try to evade blame and some sociologists will talk about this as giving an account rather than an apology. In order for something to be a sincere apology, it really needs to be I was the one at fault, and now I'm ready to condemn that earlier self and make up for it in the future. Let's use a different example from your book. Mel Gibson is arrested, and he tells the police officers who he assumes are Jewish, and he makes several anti-Semitic slurs. Later, he makes an apology. He says, that's not who I am. That's the inebriated Mel Gibson. What do you make of presenting the different selves as one being drunk and the other sober. Yeah, this is often the way one creates an account like this. I was drunk. I wasn't paying attention. I was angry. And the Mel Gibson situation was interesting because he apologized the next day to the police for being drunk and disorderly, but he never apologized to the Jewish community that first time. It took a couple of weeks and a certain amount of public pressure from the Anti-Defamation League for him to come around to a second apology. People are often more revealing of their actual self when they're less inhibited and when their guard is up, when they're performing in public, then they put on that particular public face. Mel Gibson makes anti-Semitic remarks and then in his second apology says he is sorry to the Jews. I'm Jewish. But who represents the Jews in this matter? It's interesting that the Anti-Defamation League's president publicly announced that they were rejecting Mel Gibson's apology and asked that he try again. Who should represent the public in these matters? The ADL have a certain standing as a group representing Jews and with a particular history of activism and alertness. So that gives them an opportunity to speak as an authoritative voice. You know, they may not speak for everyone. They're able to offer a reasoned response to Mel Gibson's bad apology. Who is it that has the authority to either accept or reject an apology? And this is why national apologies are so tricky sometimes, because... With many communities, there's not one organization that is 
the spokesperson for everyone. Let's break down what goes into a good apology. Step one is to first apologize to the person that's been harmed, and that's what we just discussed. The second thing is to identify exactly what you did wrong, because with many failed apologies, what is left unsaid is the relevant bad behavior that we're talking about. Can you please comment on the proper identification of the misconduct? The most important thing in an apology is to name what you've done wrong. Often that involves identifying the rule of conduct that you violated, what exactly you did wrong, and also identifying who you did it to by addressing it directly to them. If I just sort of say, my bad, or I'm sorry, that leaves everything sort of hanging. An apology really needs to identify what the harm was. That opens the door to talking about how you're going to be a different person in the future, how you're not going to violate that rule of conduct. Why do you think people fail to identify the specific wrongdoing? I think it's hard to take the shame and the blame of what you've done. It's much easier just to say something like, I'm sorry, or mistakes were made, than to actually get up and say, I apologize to you for behaving inappropriately or for using this particular slur or for damaging your car. It's easier to sort of distance yourself from the harm. The third most important ingredient in a successful apology is to be sincere in your contrition. Contriteness is interesting because to actually accept the shame of something is that piece of sincerity that someone's not just reading an apology that their public relations team put together for them. You get a feeling that they really do feel ashamed about what they've done. One of the ways you can tell this is whether they walk the walk after the apology. It's easier to find these bad, insincere apologies where people try and get out of trouble. But there do seem to be some where a person really changes their behavior and is a different person for the long term afterwards. The last ingredient of an apology appears to be, I promise to be better going forward, specifically with the injured party. I promise not to harm you anymore. Talk to me about that promise to be a better person. There was a situation a few years ago where there was a football team that was singing racist chants on a bus and it was recorded. Two of the students who were singing apologized. They did a fairly good apology. They met with some African-American leaders in their community. They had the leaders with them when they apologized. One of the students said that he was going to dedicate himself to fighting racism or anti-racist education and so on. Um, So he really put down a marker for what his behavior was going to be in the future. You could tell that if he followed through on that sort of thing, he would be a changed individual. And the fact of doing something bad and apologizing for it and coming to terms with it really was a life-changing thing for him. What makes a bad apology? Nobody believes in apology anymore because there are so many awful ones. People are just assuming they're insincere. You can tell if someone does something wrong and they use language like, I regret that this situation happened. Often there's a sense that they are apologizing to the public for something they should be apologizing to an individual for. 
I've noticed this with YouTube apologies in particular, which were very popular for a time. You just record the apology and put it out there. You don't actually have to face a person. Have you improved your own apologizing? One of the things that I learned from doing all this research was I tend to apologize less, but apologize better. So if I don't think I've done something wrong, then I won't apologize. But if I think I've done something wrong, I'll be sincerely contrite and try to follow those steps. The other day, I was supposed to meet a friend of mine for a drink, and I screwed up. I forgot, and my wife invited me to do something else, and he called and said, where are you? I told him I screwed up, and then I mentioned how I got disoriented and confused. Should I have made any excuses or ended it with just screwing up? I would have not explained the confusion. I've done the steps that you did. I'm sincerely sorry. I want to make it up to you. When can we get together? I got overcommitted without bringing your wife into it or that you got discombobulated. The fewer people you bring into an apology, the better, I think, because there's always that sense of, oh, he's trying to blame his wife. Yeah, I didn't mean to do that. Don't people want to know what happened? Why did you screw up? What happened? The sort of immediate thing would be to take the responsibility, say that you're going to make it right, and then Later on, when things are in the cool hindsight of when you actually do get together and have a drink, you can explain, well, here's the situation. I forgot that I had these conflicting commitments. The apology has been made, and now the other party must decide whether to accept the apology and forgive. How should that decision be made? The sort of role of the person who's on the receiving end of an apology is to listen and give it some consideration and feedback. An apology is really the start of a different conversation. You're having the beginning of a conversation with what could be a new person. Sometimes the person's not ready to receive an apology, or they really can't agree on what the harm was. That's often the case in national apologies. Do you have a duty or responsibility to forgive a sincere apology? For example, from a religious perspective, at Yom Kippur, the service starts out by saying, I've sinned, and it gives you a laundry list. And I look through that laundry list, and I go, oh my God, I bet at 100 this year. And there's always a guy next to me who goes, hey, Larry, look, you've got a particularly bad one over here. I say, what's that? It's for supporting bad causes. But in the second part of the service, it says that we should forgive those who have sinned and try to move on. But not everyone's very good about that. Tell me about forgiveness. You have to judge the sincerity of the other person. Just as you can apologize too quickly and apologize for the wrong thing, you can also forgive too quickly just to make something go away. I think the social or moral responsibility of the person receiving an apology is to see where that conversation needs to go. I had a podcast with Tina Brown to discuss her book, The Palace Papers, and Prince Harry's book, Spare. In it, Harry speaks ill of his brother, William, and he says that William beats him up and wasn't there to console him in his moments of grief. He wasn't very supportive or loving and was not supportive of his relationship with his wife. I asked Tina, do you think that relationship could ever be repaired? And she said it would take a Christ-like disposition to be able to move past that. How do you think about forgiveness based upon the level of the transgression and the intimacy and public nature of the dispute? 
My guess is there would need to be some sort of family or royal tragedy for the two brothers to really have that sort of rapprochement. You know, maybe when Charles dies, they may get to a point of having that sincere conversation. I suspect they'll just kind of avoid each other for quite a long time. And then as they age, there'll be some sense of, oh, you know, we really shouldn't have let this get this far kind of situation. And I see that with people who hold a grudge for a long time. I grew up in New Jersey with all these old Italian families, and they believed in the vendetta. So you'd have these brothers who wouldn't talk to each other for years until later the mother dies or something, and they have this cure for reunion. We often see public apologies for actions done by other people in the distant past. Who should be making these apologies, and are they appropriate? It's important to look at the effect of the apology. Does it create a more functional society, a more functional polity? Do the people that are being apologized to feel that their sort of historical experience is somehow being validated and recognized rather than being dismissed? I think apologies and forgiveness need to go together. People should give sincere apologies with an expectation that they will be forgiven by the other side. But let's suppose that we think that it's highly likely that the other side will not accept the apology and that there will be no forgiveness. Now, the apologizer will have denigrated himself and brought shame on himself for little gain. I'll give you an example from your book where you highlight that Richard Nixon refused to apologize for Watergate because Nixon believed that his political enemies would never forgive him. So what's the point? Nixon argues that he'd already made the ultimate apology. He resigned from his office. He ended his political career. He paid the ultimate penalty. What was the point of giving an apology where there is no expectation of forgiveness? I think what Nixon said at one point was, they won't see me grovel or something like that. He was clearly someone who felt that an apology wouldn't get him any forgiveness maybe because he didn't know who exactly would forgive him. I think that in a situation like that, where someone feels that there's no relationship there to repair, he saw no point in apologizing. Next topic is Bill Clinton's apology in the Monica Lewinsky affair. It took him, if I remember correctly, five different tries to get to a reasonable apology that I think he made at a Yom Kippur prayer breakfast. The first apology was really... I take full responsibility for having inappropriate relations. Even his supporters thought that that was a horrible apology. Over the course of the next few months, he apologized two or three different times and finally got to a point where he talked about shame. It was on September 11th, 1998. I don't think there's any fancy way to say that I've sinned. What's he talking about? One of the ways to read this is, Genuine repentance, repairing a broken spirit. He's talking about using his religious beliefs to become that better person, to become a new person. So he's really echoing the split self idea here. In the earlier apologies, he was the typical lawyerly Bill Clinton that would say, I regret what happened, but there wasn't much to it. So he really went from being lawyerly to being preacherly here. Going back to your rules for a good apology, the first is to identify what you did wrong, which in this case 
was to have a sexual and inappropriate relationship with an intern in the Oval Office and then lying about it. He does an interesting thing here when he says, I don't think there is a fancy way to say that I've sinned. This is the part where if he were being sort of fully contrite, he would name the harm that he did to Monica Lewinsky, to his family, etc. But he tries to get around it by saying, there's no fancy way to name what I did. What does he mean by that? He's accepting blame, but not quite being specific about what was done wrong. As he went forward, he apologized more. A few months later, what I want the American people to know is that I'm profoundly sorry for all I've done wrong in words and deeds. I never should have misled the country, Congress, my friends, or my family. Quite simply, I gave in to my shame. So as he goes on, he takes different pieces of the apology and builds them out. But as people have pointed out, he's never really apologized to Monica Lewinsky for all this. Clinton loved to use polling before he made a political decision. I assume he tested the various apologies to see what worked best. In the future, we can ask ChatGBT to write an appropriate apology. This would be interesting to put in a scenario and then ask ChatGPT to write five apologies for it. Before there was ChatGPT, there were consultants. And the consultants would look at what's been written on apologies and try to craft something that hit all the buttons. But they still have to be delivered by people. I've seen a couple of apologies that were sort of clearly written by consultants or PR experts. And when the actual person goes out to deliver the apology, it comes out of their mouth in a much different way. It'll be interesting to see how much you can fake sincerity. Like the old saying, if you can fake sincerity, you can fake anything. I end each episode with a note of optimism. Ed, what are you optimistic about with regard to apologies? There's been a lot of talk about apologies in the last 40 years, and I think people are thinking much more critically about what makes a good apology and what doesn't. There are still lots of missteps and lots of insincerity out there, but I'm encouraged by the way that people are thinking about distinctions between apologizing, regretting, empathy, and thinking about how to actually name a harm that's done to someone. Thanks, Edwin. I'd like to now go to our second speaker, Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next movie, TV, and cultural critic. Darren, what makes a good apology? I think what makes a good apology is that there's authenticity and that you specifically state what you had done wrong, referencing how you think it may have made the other person felt, and then state that you're not going to do it anymore, whatever that thing is. Those are the main components for me. Do you think you should ask for forgiveness or not? I always want forgiveness. I would actually prefer to ask for forgiveness or get it without even apologizing, and I think that's probably not the right way to go. Asking for forgiveness, maybe it's a little bit too self-centered. That said, I always do. I don't think I do. I'm surprised you would even bother. Well, I've literally never heard you once apologize in your life. Are you effective with your apologies? I think that I've become a much better apologizer. I don't. Well, I'm sorry for that, Larry. And I wish you felt differently, but you're wrong. I think I've gotten better. I'm not sorry about that. Well, I'm sorry that you're not sorry. So I think I'm better now. I don't know. Who knows? How have you improved? I think I do less things wrong. My family literally used to call me 
I'm sorry and oops, jokingly, because I would always fall down the stairs. I'd say, whoops. And then I'd always say, I'm so sorry, because I was just constantly doing things wrong. I think I do less things wrong now. And I think because of that, I'm more concerned about if my apology is received well. Do you think people overuse the word sorry? I do. I think that's part of the vernacular that we've just developed over time. I've just noticed it. It's constantly saying, instead of excuse me, people say sorry. So you're in line and you jostle someone. And instead of you saying, excuse me, now people say, I'm so sorry. And what's interesting is that there's another weird thing that happens in our language where now people say you're good. Like no one ever said you're good before. So I'm sorry and you're good. And I definitely think that we overuse it. My bad. Same thing. That's new too. I mean, within the last 10, 20 years. I don't agree with that either. I'm sorry, I have a question. Well, why are you sorry? Just excuse me, I have a question. But if you constantly are using that, it undermines in the future when you actually are sorry. People, I think, respect you less. They think you're a schmuck. This guy's always apologizing. What do you do wrong? Well, this expression, sorry, often is not just an expression of empathy. I'm sorry you feel that way. I am too. What is that, I'm sorry you feel that way? What is that? I'm sorry you feel that way is definitely a bit of a power play. When someone says, hey, man, I don't like, you ran over my cat and I'm mad. You say, I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean you're sorry for? You killed my cat, man. What's What's the story here? So I think that that probably is a little bit of a verbal bullying that people who just do not want to apologize. People use apologies with empty expressions. I take responsibility for that, and then they proceed to explain why they had no control of the situation and don't deserve any culpability. Tell me about taking responsibility. Taking responsibility is critical in life, and I think it shows people that you're engaged and you're honest and you're sincere. But I also think it's hard for people these days, and I think we are in an environment in our country or in our world. When someone says, hey, I don't like the fact you did this, then you attack the person that said that, as opposed to going down the path of trying to reconcile and discuss it, people push back on having any responsibility, any accountability. And I think accountability and responsibility, to a certain extent, make the world go around, and you figure it out, and you come together, and you move forward. Darren? As the TV, movie, and culture critic for What Happens Next, I'd like you to discuss a movie that you recommended to me entitled The Banshees of Inishirin. The film was released in October 2022. It was nominated for nine Oscars. It won none. Some people loved it. Others thought it was a complete bore or worse that it just made them angry. I found it very thought-provoking because it deals with questions about apologies and forgiveness. Darren, please take us through the plot and how this film helps us better understand apologies. I did love it also, and I'm glad you did watch the movie. So the plot centers around two very good friends. It's an Irish island. Colin Farrell, Brennan Gleeson are the two protagonists, and they're best friends. And they, at 2 or 3 p.m. every day, meet at the local pub, and they drink. One day, it opens up with Brennan Gleeson not being there. Colin Farrell says, where is he? Where's my buddy? goes to his house, says, hey, are you coming? And he just ignores him. He knocks on the window, won't even look at him, won't talk to him. Goes back to the bar. They're like, hey, where's your buddy? Brendan Gleeson's character says, eventually, I don't want to be around you. And Colin Farrell is continually now apologizing. He doesn't even really know what he's apologizing for. There's no specific reason given. So in this case, there has been no malfeasance. There's been no crossing the lines. There's been nothing presumably done except for Colin Farrell's existence which after years and years of being best friends, 
Now, Brendan Gleeson says, I'm done with it. I'm fed up. And the rest of the movie is Colin Farrell trying to come to terms with that. And you can see it literally drives him crazy because he can't get a straight answer. And he apologizes umpteen times to no effect. In one of Colin Farrell's apologies, he says something like, when he was drunk, that if he angered his former friend, please forgive him. And that's been one of the themes of this podcast, is referring to your bad self and making the argument, that is not who I am. Well, first of all, what's interesting is that Brendan Gleeson's reply is, I prefer you when you're drunk. <laughs> that. So I think the blanket apology, when all else fails, is probably fine if you then can follow up and say, just tell me what I did, and I won't do it again. I'm sorry, I have no recollection. If you tell me that, I won't do it again. I think it's fine. I think if you don't really go in depth and the specifics of why someone's mad at you or what you did wrong, I think that's probably a cop-out. In the movie, things get crazy. And at one point, Brandon Gleason says, enough is enough. Let's call further violence and malfeasance. But Colin Farrell refuses to accept the truce. Should you forgive? There's things that you cannot forgive people for. And I think you have to have a line. And when people cross a line, then you don't need an apology. You just don't have to have them in your life. What's interesting is that's what is happening between these two characters, except that Colin Farrell hadn't done really anything except be annoying to Brennan Gleeson. I want to focus on that last aspect of apology and forgiveness, which is moving on. After the apology and its acceptance with forgiveness, the next issue is whether we continue the relationship as it was, or in a new way, or do we go our separate ways? On this tiny island in Ireland where there's only one pub and a handful of residents, the whole point is that you can't go your separate way. Now what? Well, I think that this thing ends badly. There needs to be maybe a part two, which is where these guys just kill each other. Like there's, there's only so many sheep you can hang out with on this island. And there's only so many places you can walk. And listen, they did some bad things. If you haven't watched the movie, watch it. It's a dark comedy and extremely disturbing, I think, on some levels. You either have to accept the apology, you have to kill one of them. Or they're both going to die because there's just too much service. If you know Yiddish, too much service going on. You can't look at that every day. Let's now move to our favorite Hollywood movie star, Mel Gibson. Take us through Mel Gibson's failed apology. The incident that people know about was the anti-Semitic rant that was captured on the police officer's audio when he was stopped and he was hammered. He went through multiple different iterations of apologizing until he had enough people sit him down and say, here's how you should do it, man. And then he figured it out and people kind of accepted it. I think most people kind of rolled their eyes and said, I don't think he believes it. What I think probably less people know is that in 2010, he was recorded by his girlfriend, Oksana Grigaryava, something like that. And the things he said on that would make the worst of humanity blush. It was racist, sexist, homophobic, cruel. It was horrible. He was also charged with battery and hitting her. You look back at how that completely undermines his apology, because even though they're different things, there's a certain level of humanity that you assume when someone's saying, I'm so sorry about being a racist and hating Jews, and you apologize, and then you do this, you're like, okay, he didn't mean any of it. Does that mean now that I can't watch Road Warrior or Mad Max? You know, can I not watch Braveheart? I don't know. What do you think? No, I mean, it's great art. I think we should be able to distinguish it. I mean, Roald Dahl was also an anti-Semite. And I mean, I'm going to read the twits to the kids, to the grandkids. I mean, it's the best. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'll be honest with you, that's actually kind of upsetting. 
I'm going to have the James the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Charlie Shocker Factory. By the way, very few people know about Charlie and the glass elevator. You know? Also, his gray had four grandparents. They were in bed. You know, they just get out of bed. Just facing each other. I mean, there's so many different, you know, hygiene issues. Terrifying. There's a famous apology that Biden made to Obama during Obama's presidential race. He said something like, I think this is a different kind of candidate. He's an articulate and clean black man. What do you make of that and Obama's decision to accept Biden's apology? Well, I think what most people would not be shocked about, regardless of your political affiliation, is that Joe Biden made a gaffe. I mean, you know, this goes back decades, even the hair plugs, I mean, from the 80s. I think he said on the Anita Hill congressional hearings, that was like a plastic surgery gaffe. But everyone needs each other. They're on the same team. And I think Obama certainly is a high character guy, also very savvy and figured, okay, we're going to make the best of this and move on. And then ultimately Biden gave a very good apology. And I think Obama initially accepted it, but it wasn't quite a vigorous enough acceptance. Some people, politicians included, don't apologize. Right. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's a strength or a weakness? I think it depends on the situation. We have some examples right now. Former President Trump does not apologize. I don't think he's ever apologized. The people around him love it. I think it emboldens people. Like, yeah, screw it. I don't have to apologize. I can do whatever I want. You know, I think it makes you kind of less of a human being. Let's talk about Bill Clinton's apologies. I think that he's a savvy guy. I don't think he meant a word of it. I think it took him a long time to get to an apology that made sense. And I watched it and it's on YouTube. One of the funniest parts about it is that when he finally gave the apology that people said was the right one, and I think it was delivered at a Yom Kippur breakfast. How could that be? Yom Kippur is when you fast. He probably could gobble a cheeseburger or six and he went into the thing. Well, you know, what are you going to do? And the best part about it is now it's like third or fourth try at apologizing. And he said something like, I've been in quite a journey the last few weeks for us to get to the rock bottom truth. It's like he was an archaeologist with the entire team. Like, they're digging for the truth. Like, hey, I think I got something here, guys. Let's come over here. I think I found the truth. But it was him. He had the truth the whole time. It was kind of brilliant. The other thing is that he did it, like I said, a young kipper. And I've always had a personal philosophy that, you know, I save all the really bad things that I'm going to do till just before young kipper. Because for those of you who don't know, young kipper is a day of atonement. You go in, you say, I'm sorry, boom, you're forgiven. So if you really load those up, you know, August, September, October, done. You know, if you do something wrong in November that's really bad and you're a Jew, you're an idiot. Do you have suggestions to improve forgiveness? I don't think you have to let it go. Maybe just retaliate. You retaliate enough, then you feel as bad as they do, and then you're even. I guess that's one way. Probably not advisable. Jimmy swaggered. Take me through what happened, the apologies, and its effectiveness. So the Jimmy Swaggart incident, I remember from the 80s, and he was caught with a prostitute. The Council of Religious Leaders said, you're suspended for two years. He went on TV and he cried like a baby, but he didn't really apologize. And what he did was, what Clinton kind of did is the God-based apology. I'm so sorry. I now realize I have to answer to God or a higher power. He didn't really say the specific things that had happened. 
I think that's also kind of brilliant. And as you say, listen, God's running this deal now. God's the judge. So you people don't really need to judge me anymore. I've got it. He and I are working this out. People buy into that, which I think is ridiculous. Suspended for two years, came back for three months. And that's what everyone really remembers, the Jimmy Swaggart crying incident. But what a lot of people don't realize is that in 1991, he was driving the wrong way down a street, which that seems bad. He was pulled over by a cop. And in the car with him was a prostitute. Different prostitute, my understanding. However, this time, he announced to the world, I think his son announced or someone announced that he had consulted with God and God told him to relay the following message, it's none of your damn business. <laughs> it was brilliant. So then he stepped down for a period of time, which I assume was for you know, more coke and hookers. The second time, he's like, forget it. I talked to God, we're good, leave me alone. How do you think about hypocrisy and the public and his congregants' willingness to forgive him for this transgression? Well, I don't think the congregants are public. It's their hypocrisy. I think the hypocrisy to me in that is the amount that people are willing to be deceived in the name of God. And that's not a controversial statement in terms of believing in God or not. It's just that once you do that God-based apology, people just seem to buy into it. And so I think that's a real hypocrisy. People just allow themselves to get fooled because they have such a deep belief in their religion, which makes it even more so how much Jimmy Swagger and others like him have betrayed them by saying, hey, God's forgiven me, so you should too. Let's talk about successful apologies. Hugh Grant. He was just getting his career started. He just started in Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is like his first big hit. He's dating Elizabeth Hurley. Hottest woman in the world, as far as I'm concerned, at the time. And he got caught on Sunset Boulevard with a prostitute. His apology has been referred to as the most successful apology in the world. The first thing that happened is they took his mugshot. And in the end of his mugshot, he looks upset. He looks sad. He's got the floppy hair. His hair looks sad, but it's magnificent. So then and they went kind of on a PR tour. But the big part of that was he was on the Leno show, on the Tonight Show. And Jay Leno started out, looks at him. He goes, what the hell were you thinking? Everyone laughed. He looked sheepish. And then what was brilliant is he said, I've been consulted by a lot of people. They've come forward. They've given me advice to do this or do that. And essentially he's saying people were giving me advice on how to make excuses and deflect blame. However, I know that that's bollocks. You know, I know that's bullshit and I've chosen not to do that. And I need to take full responsibility. And for everyone I've hurt, then he went and apologized. And what to me was so brilliant about that is he now is saying, we all know that people, just in general, certainly in this business, were going to tell me to try to get out of it. And I said, no, you guys are the bad ones. I'm going to take the hit and be honest. And he was like, forgive me. He's still beloved. Phenomenal hair, good-looking guy. I don't know how old he's now. He looks fantastic. Give us an apology from your family. At a very young age, my father, Maury Schwartz, was asked by our neighbors, the Dahlbergs, to... I hope they're not listening, by the way, to watch their goldfish. They had three beautiful goldfish, and they had a typical goldfish fish bowl. And so you had to change the water because, you know, it gets dirty. So I was in our utility room with him. I was excited, like, it's exciting. Oh, my God, we're going to change the fishbowl water. But I had a general idea of how to do it, but I didn't know. It just seemed like a high-level operation. My father takes the bowl and is over the big utility sink and the fish are still in it. And he's now trying to navigate the water out while keeping the fish in. He's trying to maximize efficiency. He's gonna dump the water out, 
fish stay in, fill it up. And he gets almost to the end, and he has to do that one more tilt, and one at a time, boop, 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 down the drain, gone. I watched it in horror. I started shrieking. I tried to get my fingers in there, just gone. After I was hysterical, I said, what are we going to do? You know, we're going to call a plumber. He said, nope, we're going to go to the pet store. And so we went to the pet store and we got three goldfish that looked as much like the other goldfish was on. We gave them back and no one was the wiser. If any of the Dahlberg family is listening, I'd like to apologize. It was not my fault, which is the cornerstones of a bad apology, but I'm deflecting. This is a deflection. Deflect. It is not my fault. It's my father's fault. And he died and maybe he died karmically because of this. We're even. My niece Caroline went on a vacation and gave her goldfish to my parents, her grandparents, to take care of. In a similar situation, I think they cleaned the bowl and they woke up in the morning and the fish were upside down, so they went to the pet store. They got new fish and then they handed it over. And in that handoff, Caroline said, that's not my goldfish. You killed it. I mean, how horrible was that? Well, what was the reply? You're a smart little girl. I end each episode with a note of optimism. Darren, what are you optimistic about as it relates to apologies and forgiveness? I don't know. Are you pessimistic? No, I grew up as an optimist, and I think you grow out of that and then maybe try to recapture it. I don't know. I'm feeling pretty good. Do you have anything related to this apology episode? Okay, okay let's do optimism, okay? A, a note of optimism, I'll say this. In lieu of having anything high-minded, I'll be totally honest with you. I got new irons this year. Okay, I got Ping I-525s. I'm hitting them fantastic. And I feel pretty good. Thanks to Edwin and Darren for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was India is broken. Our speaker was Ashok Modi, who is a professor in international economic policy at Princeton. He is the author of the book, India is Broken, A People Betrayed, Independence, to today. Ashok discussed the problems inherent in India's democracy with its insidious corruption. We discussed India's failures in public health and education from kindergarten through college and how that fueled India's economic underperformance relative to China and its other Eastern Asian neighbors. India is the world's most populated country at 1.41 billion people, and that's more than 17% of the world's population. So India is everybody's problem. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in sixminutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.